It's so good to see everybody together. For those of you 1045ers who have adjusted your time schedule, we appreciate you being here so we could all enjoy this together. Over the last 20 years, we've had a multiplication of superheroes. If you're the patriotic, old-school type, you have Captain America to look up to. If you're a high-tech person, you'll have Iron Man. If you like big green people, you have the Hulk. But my very first superhero when I was a kid was Superman. Now, even back then, I thought Clark Kent was a little nerdy. You know, I didn't really care much for him. And Lois Lane was just absolutely clueless. I never could figure out, even as a five-year-old, how could she not know? I mean, that just didn't make any sense. And so I always tolerated those people, and I tolerated the plot lines. But I was always, in my heart of hearts, waiting for one thing. I was waiting for that moment, right? That moment when Clark Kent would slip into the phone booth and he would rip his shirt off and that big red S would show up because when he did, oh boy, then the fun would begin, right? Then, then the bad guys were in trouble. The people in danger would be rescued and you knew justice would be served. Now, if, if you can identify with my five-year-old self, then perhaps you can understand that's exactly the kind of moment that the disciples were hoping for in Matthew chapter 24. They were just hoping that Jesus would rip back that covering and show that big red M right there for the Messiah. So let me set the stage for you, and let me take you back to some of the background where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 24. So here we are in 24 and 25, the last major discourse, happens on Tuesday afternoon. The three chapters before this, 21, 2, and 3, have happened on Sunday through Monday to Tuesday morning. And what we've had here in chapter 21, frankly, is an untriumphal entry. We don't speak of it that way typically, but as you'll see here, that's what it was. It was absolutely untriumphal. Then the leaders reject Jesus in chapter 22, and he returns the favor in chapter 23. So what that leaves us then is this. Jesus is now going to prepare his leaders, the 12, for what's about to come. Now, this is a very private section. That's why the big line is here. Because everything up to this point was absolutely public, and now it's very private. Jesus has left the crowds and only speaking to his 12 on the Mount of Olives. And before that, he's been three days in the temple. Now, let me also set the stage for you. Uh, visually, so you can see the picture, because the places where this happens are mentioned in Scripture, and they're important. So this is a model of the temple area, and that you can see the temple in the middle, and the courts around it surrounded with the red. Now, it's just a model, so you don't quite get the scale, but I'm going to show you the next picture, which is what this looks like today, and here it is. It's a huge, huge area, and the Dome of the Rock is sitting right where the temple would have sat during this time period. So where we are in this viewpoint is we're we're hovering right over the Mount of Olives to the east. So if we're to kind of set down here and look at it, here's here's the view we would have of uh, the Dome of the Rock, and that outline is where the temple would have sat, would have dominated this area. Or to put it one more way, you see the Mount of Olives, the ridge here to the the ridge of mountains here, and the, the temple area here, of course, The little red trail there is the trail that Jesus would have traveled on the donkey on Palm Sunday down into the temple. And he spends three days down there, basically, and then comes back, and where the little starburst is 
on the Mount of Olives sits and reflects on what has happened and what is going to happen. Now, the reason I show this to you is because even the places are important. Because 40 days from now or so, Jesus is going to stand right here in this very spot, the Mount of Olives, and ascend up into heaven. And the angel said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up in heaven? The same Jesus who was taken from you will so come in like manner as you've seen him go. Not, not just come back visibly in person, but even if we can believe Zechariah, and I think we can, probably to this very Mount of Olives. So this, this spot from which he is speaking is really, really important. Now, one, one more place of context before we move on, and that's this. We are find ourselves now in chapters 24 and 25, the very last the fifth of five discourses designed to teach disciples. The Sermon on the Mount, chapter 10 when he sends out the 12, the parables of chapter 13, and the focus on the church in chapter 18, and now the very last of five major teaching sections. So let's get right to the text here in chapter 24 and verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and he was going away. Now, that, those are really strong words. What they mean is Jesus is abandoning. He's really leaving. It's not just, oh, he happened to wander away. No, no, no. He has left, right? Because of those things we just talked about, and especially the verse which comes before, the last verse in chapter 23, see, your house is left to you desolate. He was in the temple, and he said, because of your rejection, I am leaving this house. So this is, this is a huge abandonment and moving away. And the disciples, I think, sensing this, feeling this, say, don't leave yet. Lord, look at these uh, pretty uh, buildings. Look at the temple here. Now, this is an absurd statement, really, because this is not the time for tourism, right? It's not the first time they've seen them, but I think they sense him moving away. Jesus will have none of it, right? So Jesus kind of dashes cold water on them and says, yeah, you, you think that temple's pretty? Tell you what. Uh, every stone is going to be torn down one from another. It's, it's going to be terrible. Not one stone here will be left upon another. Now, wh- wh- what's actually going on here? Well, l- let me say this, that as we, as we move here to this next section, he sat down on the Mount of Olives, and they say, tell us when will these things be? What Jesus is doing here is trying to redirect their attention to the future. And so they say, well, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, I need to talk about the sign of the coming here for a second. Because what the disciples were thinking was not what we think, right? When we see that sign of the coming, we think of the second coming, the return. We think of Jesus came the first time, then there were 2,000 years in between, and he will come again. The disciples were not thinking that he was going to leave and come back again. When they see the coming, what they mean by that is the coming of Messiah to come in power and to destroy the enemy and to rescue the good people. Now, what they're, what they're asking is, Lord, would you just show them who you really are? That's what they think of when, the, with the, the, when they say the word coming. And they've been taught to think this because this is what Jesus has told them and this is what the Old Testament teaches them. For example... In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, a very powerful, important passage, it says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
Right? This, is, this is Jesus' favorite reference for himself because this is him coming before the Ancient of Days, God the Father on the throne, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So this vision of a human coming before the Father to take control of the entire world is the coming of the Messiah. And this is exactly how Jesus phrases it later on in this chapter, verses 30 and 31 or so. Uh, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So when they say, when is your coming? They're saying, when are you going to show them who you are? When are you going to do that Clark Kent thing and show them? And again, if you think I'm making this up, I'm really not, because this is exactly where we were in Matthew 17. Jesus says at the very last verse of 16, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then what happens? Well, what we call the transfiguration, where the text says that his his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, Moses and Elijah were there, and the voice from the cloud, the Father in heaven, speaks to him and says, this is my beloved son. They were terrified and fell on their faces. Why? Because they'd seen the coming. And and they were terrified, but they were excited as well because they're saying, yes, this is who he is. Up until this point, he's been sort of veiled, and, and he hasn't shown anyone, and this is who he is. So, when he came in on Sunday... And, and got on that little donkey and rode down into the temple. What they were saying was, oh, oh this is it. This has got to be it. This has got to be the coming. Because what he's doing is following in the footsteps of Solomon, David's first son, fulfilling Zechariah. And he's going to come down there and he's going to do that thing. And then the Romans are going to be crushed. And, and we're going to be sitting on 12 thrones of Israel. The trouble was that none of that happened. As Jesus walked down, after the parade was over, there were some palm branches left on the ground, but those mean Roman soldiers were still in charge, and the temple still much, pretty much continued as it was. And so they were a little disappointed. The trouble is that Monday and Tuesday didn't help their case because they thought, well, maybe if he goes in and, and debates all the, the, the leadership, they'll win them over, but no. All that happens on Monday in chapter 22 is they dig in their heels even more. And they say, no, we're not going to have this man rule over us. And to make matters worse, what Jesus does in chapter 23 is says, well, then that's it. It's over. You're condemned. And he walks away. And so what you have here is, is this sense that it's just been a total bust. Jesus has not come in power. All he has done is burn bridges beyond any repair. So what they're asking and what they're thinking is, Jesus, when is it going to happen? We know who you are. We know what the Old Testament says. Would you just let them see? And they're asking questions like this probably. When are you going to put the crown on? Is it going to be today? Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be the day? Is it going to be Friday? Are you going to be wearing a crown by Friday? Just tell us the time. And Jesus would say, yeah, I'll be wearing a crown by Friday. Not the crown you think of. And you don't want to be in my right and my left when I wear that crown, right? All, they, they don't see the cross coming. All they want to see is the glory. So Jesus says, okay, boys, we have some things we've got to talk about. 
So here's what we need to talk about. And he sits down and he tells them what the end of the age, when his coming will be. And the outline for this chapter is simply this. The things that precede the coming, 4 to 14, the coming in 15 to 35, the purpose of the prophecy, and then finally the response to the prophecy. And we're going to work our way down through that. But before we do, you should know uh, that what Jesus is going to do here is give them a, a sort of a timeline of events of when this is going to occur. But he is basing his teaching firmly on the Old Testament of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And he's going to refer to it explicitly, but, but everything about Daniel 9 is underlined what he has to say. So in order to walk through this quickly, I want to first give you the background that Jesus has in his mind. That is four verses in Daniel chapter 9. So this is in your handout. I'm going to move over pretty quickly to make the point, uh, but I'm not going to spend time there because, you, again, you have this handout for you. So here's what it looks like in Daniel chapter 9, the foundation of what Jesus is going to say. <clears throat> the angel says to Daniel, understand the vision. Now, that's kind of important because as we move through here, as I read for you these next verses, if you haven't read it before, and even if you have, you probably say, what? Well, what is that? I, I can't understand that. Well, no, the angel says, you can and you should. You can understand this. And you say, I, I, I don't understand it. Well, the angel would say, then work at it till you do. Right? You, need, you can and you need to. Understand the vision. Seventy-seven is a decree for your people. Now let's read it over here quickly, and then we'll go back line by line and try to make some sense of it. As the text says, No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will come like a flood, war will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He'll confirm a covenant with many for one seven, and in the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Now, I'll admit, that is a mouthful. But here we go. I'm going to go work through it phrase by phrase very quickly. Again, it's in your, in your um, outline. But here's what it means. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people, which is 70 groups of seven years, or 490 years. No one understand this. There's the statement again. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which is the decree of Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., until the anointed one, that is Jesus, the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. So, Messiah will come at the end of the seven plus sixty-two. Now, again, I know this is a little hard to follow, but stay with me. And after the sixty-two sevens, that, that is after the seven plus the sixty-two, the anointed one will be put to death. Right here in Daniel chapter 9, it tells us this chronology, and will have nothing. That is, after these groups of years, the Messiah will come, he will die, and he will not have a kingdom. The kingdom will not be granted to him at this time. So, to put this on a little chart here, you've got the decree that begins it, 
seven groups of seven or 49 years and 62 groups of seven or 434 years. And then Messiah comes and then Messiah is killed. So all of this is in Daniel chapter 9. I believe that the Messiah comes here is the day of presentation, Palm Sunday. And in fact, um, Good Friday is, of course, the day of the crucifixion. So you can see here, we're sitting right between these two momentous events on Tuesday. It's no wonder when Jesus wants to talk about what's going on in the future, he refers back here to Daniel chapter 9, which has traced the story perfectly so far. Then he goes on to say this. The people of the ruler who will come. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky because the ruler who will come is no longer talking about Jesus. This is an anti-Jesus. This is an anti-Messiah. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, another ruler, not the Messiah, will come in the future, the anti-Messiah. But before he comes, the people will destroy Jerusalem. His people will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Now, this can only be understood as the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 by the Romans' empire because there have only been two Jewish temples that have been destroyed, 586 and 70. So there's not much fuzzy doubt about this. This this has to be what it's talking about. So to put it another way, the anti-Messiah will be Roman, though he has not come yet. Now, the end will come like a flood. He will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. So let me again uh, say... This describes the trouble that Israel will have until the end times finally arrive. And if you need more commentary, just look at uh, the fiddler on the roof and it'll tell you all about that. (laughs) From AD 70 up through 2022 and beyond. So if we go back to our chart then, what we've had added is this. In 70 AD, there's a destruction by the Romans. Now you will notice that we haven't continued with our groups of seven years here. There's There's a long time here and a long discussion of things until we get to that. Well, let's get back to it, and here it is. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. What it's saying is after these events, the anti-Messiah will arrive and establish a peace treaty with many nations for one group of seven years. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation. Now, Three and a half years into this period, he'll perform an act in the temple so abominable that it will no longer be usable. Until the end, this decree is poured out on him, and that is three and a half years later, Messiah will appear and destroy him. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but here's what I want you to see. What we've got in Daniel chapter 9 is this, that the Antichrist is then going to come. In the middle of that will be an abomination of desolation in a temple, and finally the Messiah will come. Now... Why do I care about that? Here's why I care about that. Here's why we took so much time to look at it. Because what Jesus has to say in Matthew 24 is simply built on top of all that. Everything that Jesus is going to say right here in the red part is going to fit right on top of that. When he starts speaking here in verses 4 to 14, he's covering the period from now until the middle point, which is uh, the abomination of desolation in verses 15 to 28. And then all that continues until the actual coming in 29 to 35. So with that background then, understand where Jesus is going here. So let's look at it, verses 4 to 14 here, quickly. 
the things that precede the coming. So we're not to the coming yet, right? We're in that, in that intermediate period, and he says, here's what it's going to look like. False Christ, wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. So these are things that are going to happen before. This, there are going to be famines and earthquakes. Don't be alarmed. But then there will be martyrdom and persecution, and people will put you to death. But the one who endures the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, right here, what he's saying to the disciples is, you know what, I'm not going to come on Thursday or Friday because you guys are commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So right here, he is letting them know it's not going to happen soon. It's going to be a while. But you know what, at that point then, the end will come. Now, notice the difference. Up in the beginning, the end is not yet, but eventually the end is going to come. And so he says in this first section, 4 to 14, see that you're not alarmed because we're not in the end yet. But the next verse takes us to the end. <clears throat> so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in a holy place, again, the words, let the reader understand. This is not that difficult. We can understand it if we figure it, if we, if we think through it. Let those who are in the mountain, or those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Those who are in the housetops, not go down. Those who are in the field, not turn back. Now, what I want you to see is this, that before he said, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed when these things happen. It's going to be okay. But now when he gets to this section, he says, be alarmed. Flee. Take off. Because... Uh, Terrible things are going to happen. We're going to have tribulation so great, it hasn't been this way since the beginning of time. No, nor ever shall be. It will be an unprecedented time of suffering and difficulty. So bad that if it continued very long, everyone would die. But God has cut the time short. And in fact, we know the time frame here. Which leads us then to this. If someone says, look, here's the Christ, don't believe them. Why? Because you know, you know, that when Jesus does come, look at verse 27, as lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, it'll be all over the sky. No one will miss it. He will come back in such a dramatic, powerful way that no one will be able to miss it. So don't be deceived that he's already come. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall. The sun and the moon and the stars, these things created by him, to do their tasks will cease and they will bow and they will fall in worship as he comes. And then you see those words that we saw in Daniel 7 and Daniel 9. Then the Son of Man will be coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And the disciples are saying, yes, that's it. That, that's what we want to see. And what Jesus says is it, going to happen. It will absolutely happen, but it's not going to happen soon. There are things which will occur before. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. <clears throat> from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, that verse in particular has taken a beating from fans of prophecy for years. People will say things like, and it's not true, but they'll say, well, the fig tree is Israel. 
So when Israel becomes a nation in 1948, within a generation, Jesus will come back. Well, that's not true. That's not what the story says. What it means is this. When a fig tree buds, you know summer is near. When you see all these things take place, right, the abomination of desolation, you know he's near. If you haven't seen that, it's not near yet. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the message here is this. You can count on this happening. We think of the earth as something which is always here. Nothing will ever happen to the earth, but that's not true. It'll pass away. But you know what won't? God's words. Jesus' prediction of these events will not pass away until they happen. We could also say this. Jesus could also say, my words will not pass away, and neither will Daniel's. These words are absolutely certain. So we come then to the purpose of the prophecy. And I want you to look at why Jesus has told them what he's told them. And you'll see here, in the text, there's a big theme. You see what it is? But concerning the day and that hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son. And all the way down through here, even in the illustrations he gives, he says, yeah, you know, just like in Noah's day, the people were unaware Verse 42, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. If the master of the house had known, and then verse 44, therefore, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, if you just look at that whole page, do you see what the theme is? The theme is you don't know. I don't know. Even the Son doesn't know. Now, what he's trying to say here, I think, is that a lot of times when we hear about prophecy, we begin to think, oh, what's the timeline? Let's figure this out. Exactly, is Putin the Antichrist? Is that what's happening? Is it going to be tomorrow? And the answer is you don't know. In fact, even Jesus didn't know. Therefore, if Jesus didn't know, don't be looking in his words trying to figure it out. Now, again, I know that troubles a lot of people. Well, how in the world can Jesus not know? He's not God, and we'll go into discussions about the nature of who Jesus is. That misses the point here. The point here is, if Jesus doesn't know, and the angels don't know, and they live their lives perfectly well without the knowledge, guess what? You and I can too. The point of prophecy here is not to figure out a timeline. The point of the prophecy is to stay awake. Because notice this, he says, there's a lot of things you don't know, but you know what? You should know this. You need to stay awake spiritually. That's what he's saying. So, let me just summarize this point so far. What is prophecy not good for? And the answer is, it's not good for trying to figure out exactly when he's coming. Or in other words, don't set your alarm clocks. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Stay awake spiritually. Jesus calls us to faithfulness by warning us of judgment and assuring us of victory. We don't need a detailed timeline. We need to know our responsibility is faithfulness that judgment signals urgency, and the ultimate victory sustains our hope. So how do we stay awake? And that's what these last verses are about. There's a parable here of a faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over the household to give them their food at the proper time. And then there is someone, uh, another servant, who says, my master is delayed, and he beat his servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. So let me just summarize what's going on here. The faithful and wise servant remembers his Lord's return and will stay about his task. 
The wicked servant forgets about the master's return and serves himself. What the passage is saying is that if we have a sense of Jesus coming and we remember this, it will affect the way we are faithful to what God has called us to do. It will loosen our grip on this world. It will help us focus on his coming so that we don't get consumed with our lives here and become tempted to be involved in selfish ends. That we will stop trying to have the perfect life and the perfect marriage and the perfect house and the perfect career and the perfect job and the perfect family because none of those things are going to happen here. It loosens our grips so that we can really value what lasts. What's interesting to me is that in this story, he has a householder who gives food to the people. You think, well, that's, that's not very much information about staying about our task, because what, what are we supposed to do with that? Are we supposed to give food to people? Is that how you stay spiritually alert? And as you think through this whole book, you realize he doesn't have to explain what it means to stay about our task here, because he already has. What is our task? What is it that we are supposed to stay faithful about? And the answer is the entire book has been that. As he has worked us through the entire book, what he's saying is um, uh, this is how you need to live. In fact, when he gets to the end, he'll tell the disciples, go make other disciples by baptizing and teaching them to do all that Jesus commanded. Let's see, what would that be? Well, I guess it would be these things. Chapters 5 to 7 about how to live a life of integrity. Chapter 10, about witnessing to others. Chapter 13, about perseverance when everybody else turns away. Chapter 14, about loving the family. So let me just think through these. Let me just talk through them just for a second. The Sermon on the Mount was all about one thing. It was all about integrity of the heart. It was about living your life before God and not before others. It's all about inner versus outer righteousness. Pharisees are good on the outer, but not good on the inner. It's not just about not committing murder, but about the anger in your heart. Excuse me. It's not just about adultery. It's about lust in the heart. It's not just about deception. It's about honesty. It's not just about loving people who love you, but loving people who don't love you with a a changed heart. Excuse me. So that when you look at this message, the Sermon on the Mount, about the integrity of our hearts, we've got to ask ourselves here this morning, how's your heart? How is your heart? Are there parts of your heart that are not given over to him? Are there secret sins that we're keeping that keep us from having integrity of heart? If there are, I want you to know that First John says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess. But I also want you to know this. The First John chapter 3 says, Beloved, it doesn't, we don't know what, what we will be now, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And every man that has this hope on him purifies himself, even as he is pure. What the second coming does, what the coming of Jesus in power does, is give us the power to have purity of heart. Let that hope in him coming enable you to have a purity of heart so that you can have integrity of heart. Jesus is coming again so we can have, we can draw on his power to lead lives of integrity. 
What about chapter 10, Jesus saying that 12? Is there anybody here who has not felt the sting of failing to witness when you ought to? Anybody here have friends or family that you know you should witness to, but you haven't done that? Knowing that Jesus is coming back should give us the strength and the resolve. If you knew Jesus was coming back two days from now, would you muster up the resolve to tell them what you've always needed to tell them? Even chapter 10 says, Don't be afraid of them, for nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. Nothing is secret that will not be made known. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Indeed, fear the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus is coming back so we can find courage to witness the lost. What about the parables? Uh, The theme of the parables was that a lot of people, a lot of seeds came up quickly, but then they faded, faded out. A lot of people give a good response, but over time, people in the church or family or friends give way, and sometimes that might tempt the disciple to say, maybe it's not worth it if everybody's turning away. Even chapter 13 says this, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was cast into the sea, caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, they pulled it ashore and sat down and put the good fish into containers and threw the bad away. It will be this way at the end of the age. Angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. Jesus is coming back. So we can be faithful. We can persevere when other people fall away. What does this have to say about church family? Well, let me just say it like this. Sometimes a lot of people don't want to invest in the church. Sometimes people find it to be a formality. You don't even want to come. Oh, let the deacons, let the pastor do that. We don't invest in the people of God as Matthew 18, as Jesus instructed us to do there, to care for the little ones and the straying ones and everyone in the family, that this is the place where God is doing his work and providing a witness for himself in this world, that the church is so important as a testimony to God that if we neglect the church, we've neglected the thing which is most precious to the coming groom, that is his bride. What's interesting to me is that in the second half of this discourse, in chapter 25, Jesus will be able to determine who's going to heaven by the way they've invested in the church. Listen to these words. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He'll sit on His glorious throne, and then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry... And you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me in prison. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and give you drink? And the king will answer them, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers in the church. You did it to me. Jesus is coming back so we can value his people, the church. And how does this last sermon on the second coming help us stay about our task? Around this place, if you've been paying attention, in the last six months, we have lost an inordinate amount of people. Loved ones have gone to heaven. Sometimes expected, sometimes not. No experience is more difficult Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
<clears throat> I've done more funerals than I wanted to, and many of my elders carried even a heavier load than I did. <clears throat> but it occurred to me over the break, during a graveside service where we were committing a body to the ground, in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll just paraphrase, <clears throat> Paul says there, we do not think of a Christian of just putting a body in the ground forever. Instead, we should think that we are like planting a seed, which because of the resurrection, because of the coming of Christ, will then blossom into something far more beautiful than it ever was before. The coming of Christ takes the sting out of death, allows us to see through death to know it's a defeated enemy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and then the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Stay at the task. Jesus is coming back. We need not fear the last enemy, death, and our labor is not in vain. The coming of Jesus in power, like those disciples were hoping for, is not an option. It's not a secondary teaching. It's one that informs all of our service and pushes us toward faithful lives right now. One of these days... <clears throat> And I hope it's soon. Jesus will break through the clouds and he will come in power and all heaven will break loose. And oh boy, are the good times going to begin. Bad guys are going to be in trouble. The people in danger are going to be rescued and justice will be done. Let's pray together. Father, as we see this encouragement we don't want to be the kind who just study this as an academic exercise, as though trying to figure out and discern the little signs of every day will help us know. But, Lord, help us to do what you told us to do and not worry about the exact time, but, Lord, to be stay faithful to the task. And, Lord, you've told us all through this book what that faithfulness looks like. Lord, I pray that you would help us to purify ourselves even as you were pure because of the hope that you will return and everything will be set right. Lord, if, for all of us here whose lives are not right with you, Lord, help us because of your mercy to make them right with you. Lord, if there are people here who don't know you as their Savior, who have not trusted you for the forgiveness of sins, Lord, I pray that today would be the day when that happens. Father, help us to loosen our grip on this world. Put the focus where it ought to be, to have the same excitement about Jesus coming in power the disciples had in the beginning. Lord, help us to be faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.